Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. Today, we are joined by another artist. It's been a little while. I think the last one we had was Jeff uh, Lauenstein during May for Mental Health Awareness Month. He was doing his Goblin Token a Day project for COVID. Uh, and so, you know, I had been talking to uh, Ant a little bit uh, just offline. We got started talking about proofs. So if you remember the Grenzo episode from a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned these connections that we can kind of make with the artist. Um, you know, I, I had reached out to him to ask these questions about some artist proofs that I wanted to get for the Grenzo deck. And, you know, from there, him and I just got to talking and pretty soon it was kind of like, wow, we need to have you on the show. And he was like, hey, I have an idea for your show. So it was just this, it's the synchronicity. And I think that it, it, it's that fact that we have these abilities to make connections with people in our community. And there is this, you know, as I said on that episode on artist proofs, kind of that way to get to know artists through the proofs and through, you know, meeting them at events. And well, we don't have events right now, so it's through email. But we have him on today, so uh, Ant is going to be coming on. The, the broad topic we're going to be talking about is is depression and kind of the art world. Uh, you know, we've previously discussed the topic of depression with Chase as it relates to Karn. Today we're going to be talking about it a, a little more broadly and kind of also about, you know, wh where that might affect a person's art or their creativity and just kind of also just learn about Ant and his, you know, journey with art. Um, before, you know, I'm, I, I'm babbling a little bit right now because we were having some great conversation where I stupidly didn't hit record, as is pretty typical. Um, and you, I, we're going to get back there. And, and I'm already very, very excited. Uh, before we go any further, I just want to make sure that we thank um, the Grinding Coffee Company. So they are a minority-owned, LGBT-ran coffee company that has been amazing in partnering with gamers. They've given us so much support. So we always want to say thank you to them. And then, yeah, so this is Hobbs Q. Pronouns are he, him. And, you know, you know, we kind of sometimes for the burning question we have artists on, we'll talk about, uh, you know, like maybe our, our question will be one of our favorite arts from theirs. Uh, and I am struggling because there's a couple of them. But I'm going to go with circular logic. Uh, the, the, it really encompasses, I like the fact that it uses the madness keyword. And, you know, once again, this will be something that maybe you can tell us a little bit more about, but I don't know what the art, uh, you know, like what the brief was that you were given, but that card just really captures this idea of madness in some ways. Oh, so, yeah. oh my yeah. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. go ahead. Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, you picked an interesting card. Because <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that was all perfectly planned too. <laughs> you knew. Um, Dana Knudsen was the art director at the time, and um, the brief that I got it was called Death Counter. Um, and the brief that I got was have a black spell being disrupted by a blue spell. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but this is something that that um does go straight to my heart one of the the things that i love about um creating illustrations or concept work is it's the 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 romance of the blank space um the places that on earlier maps they just used to do a, a, a cool little doodle and say here be dragons <laughs> uh, I, I love being given um blank slates to play with and so I just started playing with abstract shapes since it was a spell that could be anything, really. And so I decided I wanted a, a sort of a watery shape erupting from the ground, tearing up something that had been cohesive, some black form that had been cohesive, but it's shredded it. So if you look in there, you can see four or five faces sort of boiling away. Um, disrupted by the blue spell and i'm i'm not sure exactly if 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 this was meant to work out um if, if dana planned this or we just started it just worked out that way but i ended up getting a lot of cards like that uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, here's another weird ass thing let's see what anthony can do with it um, and, and that ended up being but that ended up you know that that was um uh, mist for Ultimus, 
um, that was oh, one yeah. elemental, um, thundercloud elemental. I mean, th- stuff like that um, is is really near and dear to me. So, I'm, I'm noticing story. that. I'm noticing noticing that going through kind of the the scryfall search for for your art because there's a few cards like momentary blink. How do you capture someone who's not there but then is back again? Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. Uh, or a chameleon blur, uh, which is a, I, I would, I don't feel like it's a wholly successful card, but I'm really happy with it as an illustration, um, which is contradictory. Um, <laughs> ways, uh, because the whole point is it reads at card size and I think it takes longer than it should to figure out the card. But I was having so much fun painting weird zombie ogre things and and blending that elf into all their exposed bone and meat that I just kind of lost track of the fact that I did maybe a little too good of a job of blending him in. <laughs> Whoops. So, uh, and Alex, I just realized too, since you <laughs> since you popped in, uh, yeah, we could have you introduce yourself. Yeah, I suppose. I can turn things over to our... Also let our guests introduce themselves. Yeah. So real quick, I'm Alex Newman, found on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler, uh, pronouns he, him. And uh, yeah, I I think for, for my favorite art as I'm scrolling through, and there's some cards, like Circular Logic is a great one. I love using that card. Cryptid and the Lid is a card that I love. But honestly, I really like Sp- for art, the art, I really like the Spindrift Drake. It's It's got a gorgeous, you got the sun sort of in the background and the wave as this Drake is coming through it. Some cool water effects with the wings on the Drake. It's, I like that one a lot. Thank you very much. That was one of the last gouache paintings I ever did uh, for Magic. It was around the time that I was translating um, from real media to working in painter. Oh, so you've been digital for a while. <laughs> I started, I, the first deck where I went fully digital was Apocalypse. Um, and I talked to Dana at the time because this was at a point where Watsi was still not really comfortable with digital art. Um, they had not seen a lot of illustrations made with it. And so they weren't, I mean, even though when I was working at Watsi, uh, Dermot Power turned in a number of paintings that he had done in painter and you know it's Dermot power so they they were gorgeous <laughs> um they they, they look painted painted um but dana was concerned and so i said look i will i will turn all of these paintings in way early so if if you are not happy i will go back and i'll paint all five of them and he, he liked what he saw and so I lucked out. And from that point forward, I either worked in uh, Painter or in Photoshop. Wow. I, I mean, that's really early adoption of digital. I was, I was not expecting that early at all. Like, I mean, that's, that's really cool to hear. Uh, it, you know, we had that brief period where uh, Therese Nielsen and when she was, she was married to Chip, um, they did a lot of uh, interesting sort of collage stuff together for the earlier decks. And I thought that was really cool, but there was a sense that that was too obviously digital and, and it, it, it took a while. What's funny is that it's now, um, it, it's, it's, the needle has reversed and gone halfway back because I remember there was a time when it's like, we don't want the Pasadena look. We don't want uh, concept art for magic cards. And then suddenly Jamie Jones and a bunch of other people got on board and these are concept artists and they did these beautiful illustrations, but very much in that, that um, Pasadena style. And then everything became digital or it felt like very nearly everything became digital. And now people are doing real media again. And it's, it's, just, it's just cool to see how things go back and forth. Well, I would say too, you know, it's been interesting somebody watching uh, to see kind of the the original magic art kind of um, within the last couple of years. There's been a much bigger market for original pieces um, and them selling for large enough that even some people who have been traditionally and historically digital artists are doing at least some paintings in 
traditional medium because it's also something that can then be, you know, they have something to sell versus, it, you know, with the digital being a lot, you know, you know, you might have some concept sketches, some prelims, but a, not really a final piece. Oh, and the, the market has just gone bananas. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, we've, yeah. And the cool thing about that, um, freelancing is a, the, the primary challenge of freelancing is to get enough clients rolling that the paychecks come in sequentially um, so that, you know, you've got work six months out, meaning that next month's rent is covered and then the rent, you know, following month's rent is covered. If you do an illustration for Magic for $1,200 or $1,500, whatever it's up to now, but then you sell the painting for $20,000, you probably just paid for two-thirds of your year. You know, and that frees the artist up to maybe do some things that they want to do. Not to say that they don't Wait, want to whoa, do Wait, whoa, whoa. You, you, you all whoa. like to actually do some of your own art for oh, yourself yeah. and stuff? And like, yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it varies. Um, there are artists who just absolutely love coming up with stuff for other people. Um, and there are other people who really like Ian Miller is someone who comes to mind. They absolutely 100% look like themselves and they aren't really interested in adapting that look, um, to try and chase down work. And it's a, it's a different way of, of going, but it's, you know, it's, it's really cool to, um, have some downtime in between assignments so that if you are interested in pursuing a graphic novel or a series of illustrations on a subject that you really dig, uh, it, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge boon to be handed four months of downtime. I mean, that's, that's brand new. That did not exist in the olden days. When I was young, so I realized we we're, we're a solid, you know, 12 minutes in and um, we haven't actually had you introduce yourself at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would hope by now people do know who they're talking to or hearing or listening, I guess. But yeah. Okay. Well, let me give a, I can give you a, a quick magic recap. Um, started doing magic in, no, I'm going to stop there because I'm going to go ahead and do a, a, a few minutes of story time. So I, <laughs> I go to Northwest Con, which is a local convention up here, right? It's I, I go there in the the, the late uh, 80s, early 90s, and I end up befriending someone in a figure drawing class afterwards. I met him briefly at the con, and then I, I ended up at a figure drawing class, and there's Rob Alexander. And so we get to talking and talking a lot of shop about making it as an illustrator now. And he said, you know what? There's someone I think you should meet. Can you be down in the Renton area or Kent area, you know, at such and such a day? It's like, okay, yeah, I can come down there. I come down there to this guy's house and he's got his garage door open. And you know, those, those A-frame racks that are used for like magazines or you see them in, in, in stores where they don't have a lot of shelf space and they'll have stuff in, in, uh, in holders on those, that A-frame rack. Is this making any sense? I, I can picture this. Yes. Okay. So, okay. So imagine um, all of the alpha and beta deck artwork arrayed on these, these four racks. <laughs> uh, this was Peter Atkinson's garage. <laughs> <Just a second. laughs> and, and he was he was showcasing the, the work and trying to you know, get people to to buy into the company. And Rob brought me up to Jesper Mirfors and said, "Here's the here's the art director for Magic." Um, and I said, "Okay, uh, well, what's Magic?" And he said, "Well, and he explained it." And he said, "Do you want to do some work?" <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, here's some, you know, colored pencil stuff. At that point, I was really into uh, colored pencil art. And he said, well, we can't use that stuff because the wax messes with the, the uh, scanners. Um, so can you paint? 
I had taken one watercolor class at that point. <laughs> and so I said, sure. Yeah, I say, so the answer is obviously yes, I can. And um, the first deck I worked on was Ice Age. Uh, R&D pulled it because they did not like um, what they had created. And so the first deck that I had were published in was Legends. Um, and then Ice Age got, got, I think, published right after that. Um, I worked in uh, a number of decks, Fallen Empires, um, and then had a hiatus because I ended up getting work in the, the uh, digital world. And during that time, one of the concept jobs that I had, uh, concept art jobs, was working for a company called Daedalus Entertainment. They had a card game called Shadow Fist, which was briefly one of the very few competitors to Magic. And they had another property, Daedalus Games, that they wanted to work on. And so they brought in Anson Maddox and Mark Tadine, and Jesper suggested me. And so we spent about two or three months spitballing on what would have been a, a role-playing environment that was really intriguing and really fun. And um, then the company caught fire, rolled down a hill into a ravine, drowned, got crushed. And then the previous owner ran away to Canada to avoid taxes. So <laughs> then I went looking for more work. And um, I was about to accept a job at a, a kid's um, interactive game company when I got this call from Jesper Mirfers saying, um, you know, we're setting up a concept team at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, I'm art director again. And Anson and um, Mark were here, uh, are here working on uh, the Wrath Cycle and they uh, asked if I wanted to join them. And so, you know, to do a James Joyce on you, I said, yes. And I said yes, and I said yes, and, I, and um, for the next two years, I worked in-house uh, on seven or eight decks for uh, Magic the Gathering, um, including uh, Urza's Saga, um, and I became known as Tree Boy because I was the one who loved working in natural environments and architecture. Um, everyone, want, everyone still to this day in concept art, you want to do characters because characters are a cool thing, right? Um, I love environments. Um, I, I feel really strongly that if you want an idea of what your character should look like, you should figure out what culture they come from first. Um, there are other people who, who reverse engineer. They design the character first and then design the, the culture around. To me, it's, it's um, a lot easier to do the reverse, and it probably almost directly plugs into my ADHD. Um, but I was put in charge of Argoth, and so I developed... Um, all of Argoth's ecosystem. I designed what their elf, their elven culture looked like. Um, the dwarf, the human, uh, not dwarf, the human uh, druids uh, who lived in Argoth. And then, of course, it got blown up. Um, and we had Yavamaya then for the Phyrexian invasion. And I was put in charge of developing that island as a, a um, an island with a Gaia-like intelligence that became aware through magical and, and presumably ecological means um, what was coming and decided it was going to turn this you know, Australian-sized continent into a giant machine that cranked out Phyrexian-killing uh, creatures. And I had just an absolute ball designing that. I worked on Mercadian masks, uh, doing a bunch of stuff. Again, another forest, um, as well as... Uh, designing the merfolk, which was a ton of fun. And for the next few years, I worked on a number of decks as a concept artist. I was a principal concept artist on uh, Kanagawa. I worked on Mirrodin. I was a previs artist for uh, Ravnica, but a lot of my stuff got kept, which was really exciting uh, to see. Um, you always get excited when you crank out some ideas and, and they end up entering that world in a largely unvarnished state. Um, 
usually the point of putting out a style guide is the the you hand it over to the artists and they will not only put their spin on it but they almost always do they always one up your design they, they come up with some way to make it even cooler um it was exciting to have people look at stuff and go nah, i kind of like this the way it is it's like, yes it did something i got it <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's just look at your basics from um you know Ravnica in particular I, I the swamp I mean it just it evokes that feel like I'm really glad to hear that because it's just it is such a th- that's a world to me I like the world building piece I know that when we had um Titus Lunter on that was one of the things he talked about I mean he's he's been I mean he did a lot of the the concepts for for Ravnica later on and different pieces of the kind of the city world and he kind of even talked about with his sci-fi interest it's the landscapes it's kind of creating the world around where everything is then going to be placed into. And mm-hmm. it's such a cool idea. I love that. The, just like the, the actual building of it. It was exciting. Um, because when Jeremy approached me, Jeremy Cranford was the art director at the time. And he approached me and said, I've got this idea for the next deck. I want it to be a uh, planet sized city, magical city. And that was such a cool idea. I was, I was so excited because uh, what what do forests look like in that environment? What do swamps look like that in that environment? Uh, and he gave me free reign. Just let me play. And I pulled out my Mobius reference and um, pulled out a, a few other things. Um, I've got some really kind of grim, grim books on some grim subjects uh, that were inspirational for like the swamp area. Uh, and then he turned to me and said, do you want to do a set of land cards for them? And I go, Oh yes. <laughs> oh hell yes. Let me paint those paintings, please. Uh, and they were among the biggest paintings I've ever attempted. They are huge and they're really, really deep. Um, it's funny that you could, you're thinking about when you, when you mentioned having these grotesque books of grotesque things, um, it always, it makes me think, you know, right now I know we're talking about kind of some individual cards more than your, your actual just art journey as a person, but um, it really makes me think of Graven Cairns, which is just a card that's always stood out to me, um, especially given that it was this, you know, it's interesting because it was Future Sight. It was like supposed to be a card that was going to be printed at some point but hadn't yet you know like a cycle of cards that you were getting to see one of instead of what we were used to seeing all five of a cycle and i remember seeing that in that frame and just you know knowing that the set was made to be that that art has always just been grotesque in such an amazing way to me oh thank you so much i um the direction that i got was vampire landscape uh, <laughs> okay, I can do that. I just give me a second. I can I can do that. Um, I I I loved playing with the idea. This is I use that phrase a lot. I love, and sometimes it's in context that I think back afterwards. It's like, should I have said that I actually love that? Um, what exactly does that say about me? Um, I really got excited about the prospect of doing what a. a, a a landscape would look like if vamp- if a vampire culture had lived there for thousands of years. Um, what would they build? What would be, you know, there, there are tribes in the Amazon and Papua New Guinea that would carve totems uh, to tell you if you were traveling up river, it's like, okay, you're, you know, you're in our backyard now. Um, there's, the, there's always a set of rules that's associated with that. There's a, an etiquette that one must engage in if you want to pass through that area without ending up in the revenge cycle of that particular tribe. And I thought, okay, so what, you know, what would that be for, for vampires? Lakes of blood. <laughs> Lakes of blood, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You go around the tree up over the hill, over the other hill, and then you encounter the lake of blood and, you're in the vampire territory. Just to make you like think, I was like, you know, I was like, does do blood rivers flow north to south, or you know, I just I'm, I'm trying to picture the correct directionality of blood rivers now. I guess that depends on on if the planet's awake or asleep. 
Um, you know, the, 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 the grim, uh, direction we could go is it depends on, on where the heart is. Wow. I, I, that's not even grim. That's just, that's deep. What is, where's the heart? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe there's like a, the great, great grandfather, God of the, of the vampires who is now so old and grown so large that he's mountain sized and he wakes up once every 10,000 years to say, put the kettle on and then goes back to sleep. But in the meantime, the vampires have like put a stint into his heart so that the blood flows out of that heart and, and down a, a river that will then define some chunk of their territory. And it's, again, it's the kind of thing that, that, um, it's it's really evocative, um, so there's an awful lot you can you can do with um, there's an awful lot of directions you can run the concept of a vampire landscape. Yeah, and you something very stark that definitely and it, it fit very well for that set of sort of different visions of different futures, because it was very starkly different from other things around it in that set. One of the things that I really liked about that set was it was kind of a, I could be wrong, totally wrong here, but it felt like a return to some of the wildness that magic had at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, where storylines had not been so defined. Yeah. Um, and so people could play. It's like, what's a, what's a, 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 a behemoth? What is that in the context you know, a Leviathan, what's that in the context of magic? Um, I forget the name of the card, but there's a card by Mark Tadeen that is like a seascape and it's got this gigantic creature looming over it. And I I remember first seeing that and going, oh my God, that is so cool. From um, early, early magic? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's oh. from one of the first four decks. Uh, but I, I can't. It it's, my tongue. I think it's yeah. There's there's like this big island. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's a behemoth that is the size of an island. Yes, it's a blue card yes. and I'm blanking on it. Yeah, and the way he illustrated it just perfectly conveyed just how gigantic the thing is. Uh, and and that to me is is good fantasy right there. And, you know, I think that there's, there, there is kind of this, you know, the fact that magic is, this is something that I think is always awesome, you know, kind of when we talk about the, 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 the different axes that magic can be enjoyed along, you know, it is, it is a card game, right? Like first and foremost, it is a card game. And then we kind of think about, you know, we have the art portion to it. Then we have the flavor text that can just be on the card, you know, something that's, and all of these are just different ways to engage with the world um we actually had so we had um hunter hunter pence came on the show so he's a former uh baseball player play, played for the san francisco giants and he owns a game store he really had only played kind of through arena and learned to play kind of in paper so he had almost no exposure to the, the to the actual story and to some of that element so what he knew of character so if we're talking about nickel bolus everything that he had kind of developed knowledge about nickel bolus was through the actual just physical planeswalker cards that were out right so he thought about how that card felt when it hit the table to see it across the table and how hard it was to beat and so that gave him some element of knowing the idea of nickel bolus right and then I think like that's how he picked up story versus we have people who are really in the story that then, okay, well, do the card mechanics even match and just all these different ways to kind of have these entry places into it. And, you know, you, you even mentioned kind of uh, this old versus new world. And I think that there is kind of this discussion of, you know, nebulous story. So did, did the art draw drive more versus now? Do they have more of a marriage? I, I don't, it just to me is always fascinating to think about these different ways that we are interacting with at the heart of it a game yeah with the, the at the end of the day it's the mechanics that make it work and make it fun um but introducing 
card-specific art was a really cool idea, and then introducing story-specific art and mechanics was a really cool idea, and it combined a bunch of media that I don't know if it had ever been done before quite that way. Certainly there hadn't been collectible card games before, but to incorporate um, a story and game mechanics, well, I think Legend of the Five Rings did a bunch of stuff that was a lot like that. But I, it feels like Magic really took it um, in all sorts of astonishing directions. Yeah, and, and oh, go ahead, go ahead. And and it's something where the game has not over over the years has changed its approaches. You're saying like the early set, and in a lot of ways, I, I think you're right. The future side, even the whole time spiral block, which for me was one of my favorite favorite like groupings, because you know, all three all three sets, because I played so much early Magic, and a lot of the cards in those sets were references to the early game. But there's a lot of parallels where it felt like the earliest sets of the games were built more on a card by card level. You know, you have a couple of cards that are sort of thematic together, but you're not building the entire set from a single story tapestry when there's advantages to both. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, like doing the future site and kind of going back to that older style. It's nice. Yeah. And it's um, (laughs) magic at the beginning was a free for all. (laughs) And that's (laughs) one of the things that made it great. You know, I, I grew up um, in my teenage years looking at the artwork from D&D, from advanced D&D, the, the work of, of people like Errol Otis and Keith Parkinson, um, and just loving the, the wild, semi-cartoony, bizarre um, concepts that, that they came up with. You know, I should categorize this. Like they, they would come up with really strange and wonderful monsters and they would render them and uh, often in a way that was very um, similar to, to comics at the time. Um, and the concepts were really neat. You know, it really stimulated my imagination and then magic comes along and you've got, you know, 25 different artists who look radically different from each other. Um, Drew Tucker versus Anson Maddox versus Quentin Hoover, who's one of my all time favorites. Um, to Melissa Benson and, and Amy Weber and, and Rob Alexander and Jesper himself, Daniel Jellin. Um, everyone. You didn't throw the Foglios in the mix there. I mean, we just because we talk about their art a lot on, on here. Yeah, you got from, from a goofy goblin perspective. They're just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and like as, as we're recording this at my computer desk, I have a Christopher Rush play mat just sitting in front of me. So, you know, talking you about those old magic artists. Yeah. Yeah, so many different approaches. And, and the folios brought a sense of humor um, to magic that I thought was really fun. Um, yeah, it looked very different from everyone else's stuff, but it was fun. And, um, it, it, that, and that sense of art, I've never thought of it that way, but that, that the different artists with very different styles fits how they built the game too with all these different game pieces because there weren't published deck you know lists for what cards exist people at the time like they wanted the players to just discover new cards by playing with new people mm-hmm. and so you as a player at that time i can say i had no idea you know there was this sense of wonder every time i st- i sat down to play with someone new it's like what type of cards do they have what did they find and collect well that's a tough thing to carry forward after yeah. 27 years oh yeah i mean in the the internet makes that <laughs> much more difficult this it kind of was a was a perfect age for the game to be able to do that for a few years because there wasn't internet so people could kind of talk but it was not really what it is today so information didn't move around as easily as it does now god that is a a, that is something we could talk about for an hour just on its own the how artwork and how games and and how the gaming community has changed pre-internet to post-internet um it's, I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it, it's the things that I think about. Um, you know, the pandemic is something that's really highlighted this for me, though, to think back to, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to 
out myself as a little bit older here. Um, so, you know, I, I am of the era that in high school, I did not have the internet until probably my senior year. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for me, where I found communities was very different than where I think a lot of people maybe do now. And um, it's that double-edged sword of the internet. And it is kind of, you know, with during this pandemic, I've been able to stay so connected to the magic community simply because the internet has made that possible. But I think mm -hmm. there is some of this stuff like Alex kind of mentions where there is some loss of discovery that we have to give up for that. And loss of it, it, the community does take a hit, right? It's like we were talking about before um, the program started. Magic has a genuine community. It's, it's, and again, I, I don't mean uh, the way I frame this. I sometimes think it's like it's a disparaging of people who are really passionate about Monopoly or or um, some other board games. Like, no, those things are cool, and they, and and they rule the roost in their their uh, own coop. But Magic has a different kind of community. It's got it's unique to itself, um, and we got split up. For a long time we didn't get to hang out um and one of the things i was talking about before um we were on mic is that in general illustrators and concept artists whether it's it's um brick and mortar games or video games we generally kind of operate in a vacuum uh, we produce the art, it goes out, especially if you're in the video game industry, you know, you produce one of maybe 10,000 pieces of art and it goes out in the form of this game that hopefully people really enjoy playing, but there's, there's no place in that game where you can point to, it's like, you can't pause World of Warcraft and say, Hey, everybody, I made that tree, you know, and then, <laughs> look at it, look at it. <laughs> And have them be really excited. It's like, oh, that's my favorite tree in World of Warcraft. You know, I love hiding behind those rocks. They're so great. Um, <laughs> I've actually now pictured that, though, on a map. Like, really was, being like, I really love this outcropping, and I need to find the person who did it. It's the, I mean, it is the truth. It's like there are, there's an army of people behind games like that who their, their, their job is to produce, and I'm not kidding, 10, 15, 20,000 um pieces of art that will then seamlessly blend into a player's experience. Um, on the one hand, that means you've won, you've done your job. You walk into that world and, and you get lost in it. That's what we want for a player. But when you work on magic and you get to go to an event, suddenly you get to talk to people who have been directly touched by the artwork that you've created. I can't tell you the number of times people have come up to me with cards that I've, um, I've illustrated and the cards suck. Um, you know, they're just no, they're just not useful, but they love the art. And you don't get to hear that. You don't get to interact with fans most of the time. If you go to a, a convention like, I think I'm in a world con or dragon con. You might get a chance to rub shoulders with people who are like, Oh, I really love that book cover you did. Um, but if you do the magic circuit, you get a chance to not only find out that the work that you did had a direct and, and immediate and even visceral impact um, on somebody, you get to talk to that person face to face and even spend some, hopefully spend some time, you even get to know them as a person. And so there's this connection that is so powerful compared to creating art artwork that just goes out into the void. And then, you know, ching, you get a paycheck and you move on to the next job. It, it I think I was mentioning um, John Avon. There's a card that he has done. Uh, I don't think it's a land card, um, but it's this really beautiful illustration that has the shaft of light going straight up splitting um, this thunderstorm and somebody approached him at one event and and showed him that card and he said you know, I lost my dad last year and 
the artwork for this card makes me think of my dad. It makes me think of, of where my dad is right now. And the most important thing about art, the thing that is fundamental to it, and the goal of, of art is to touch people, to give them some kind of, of, of meaningful emotional experience. You know, you do achieve that with video games. There are people who get very involved and, and, and find um, all sorts of, of, have all sorts of extraordinary experiences because of, of video games. But and that goes for tabletop and role playing too. But in Magic, you actually get to meet the person who you've touched. Um, and that is, is powerful, motivating energy. We go back, artists, like, uh, I am going to, I will speak again in sweeping terms. We go back to, which I can, you can contradict me if you want, anybody listening, but you come back, I challenge you, uh, you come back to your studio and you're, you're energized because somebody told you, I mean, it's, it is one amazing thing to be told. I love this artwork. I am so excited because this card helped me win this event, but I absolutely love this artwork too. It's even more powerful to have someone come up to you and say, you know what, when I was in college, I was going through a real, really rough time and I got into magic and I really loved this set of lands and it gave me an escape route for when things were really bad. It gave me something to imagine walking into this forest that you created, wandering around this island that you painted. Um, I think I mentioned that Artwork is very much a dialogue. And so this is another way of saying the, the same thing I was saying earlier. We create the work and we put it out there. And most of the time we only get third party information back. Um, we get the paycheck, which is very important, but we only get amorphous hints of how the game was received and beyond that. So what was the player experience? What did they get out of it? Magic, it is immediate, uh, and that is one of the most important things about it as far as I'm concerned as an artist. I get to meet people who have been moved by my art. You know, I think of that as, yeah, kind of getting to go to events and, you know, this, you know, I'd, I'd had the opportunity to meet a couple of people at some smaller GPs prior to the, the big Vegas explosion. But I remember, you know, like I got to meet, you know, that's how I got to meet RK Post because he was at like everything. Um, yeah. You know, uh -huh. them, that man does not stop traveling basically oh, year he's around. A he's a <laughs> like, like, I have so much respect for that guy. Yeah. He is and, just a machine. And, and I think that it's what's, what's um, was amazing to me is like, so I met him that way. And then, you know, then I would see him at a few events. And then, you know, pretty soon he, he actually, you know, he remembered something about me. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that that's as a, as a, as a fan too, to then have that kind of, like you said, it is a reciprocal, it actually is a, a it can be a development of a relationship and not just kind of a one-way transactional kind of thing, um, which a lot of dialogue can be if you're just putting art out there in the world and then moving on. Um, you know, the fact that there are events that, you know, we, you know, I think of like things like Gen Con and Comic Con where artists have boots and that that is a big part of that world. But for a game to have artists, um, I mean, I remember the the GP getting to go to one of the, the Vegas's where uh, Byron uh, Wackwitz was at um, and getting to like sit down and hear from his own mouth that, you know, Angus McKenzie from Legends really was based on Tim the Enchanter, which had been my whole head canon for it anyway. And like, <laughs> I brought it up to him and he's like, oh yeah, actually, you know, I had gotten that, um, gotten that card with what they wanted for art right after having watched it. And it was kind of like, okay, like I'm not like, it was just to know that, that you know, like to see that my mindset was right. And then to get to actually share that experience with him was just like it was, it was, it was mind blowing to me to be like, wow, like this is, this is, this is a conversation. This is, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, it is amazing to me to get to have that relational piece to it. And oh I my think, God, that's outstanding. 
Some call me Tim. Right. It was, like, it was and, and, and that was one of those ones where, you know, I was getting the card signed by him. And, you know, I had a whole Magic the Gathering deck built around the idea. It was an enchantment style deck based around <laughs> the idea that the art looks like Tim the Enchanter. I mean, that was the whole basis for starting the deck. And then to have it kind of confirmed, it was just, it was really just awesome and reaffirming. But, you know, as you said, I chose to base a deck off of a piece of art. You know, that's something that can be done. Um, you know, one, you know, one thing that Alex and I have talked about a lot on the show is, you know, one of the things that happened it, it, it's, at a few GPs is Mike, Mike Lineman being a, the art person that he is. Him and some other people developed a format called Vintage Artists Constructed. Uh, do you know about this at all, Ant, by the way? It's, it rings a bell, but please, please walk me through it. So, Alex, you've played it more than I have. So, I, yeah. So, so the, the basic idea is it uses the vintage card rules for, for deck construction, which is like the most open, you can play anything, but there's a few, a few rules to it. But um, the, the, the most important part is every single card in your deck, including your basic lands, has to have, have to, ha the illustrations have to be from the same artist. Oh, and oh it, wow. It, 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 creates, <laughs> yeah, it creates some very interesting deck construction choices. I mean, and, and also it allows for a lot of, you know, you, you find that artist you really like. And especially when the artists, it, it when you're someone who is like playing this format, things that are normally not a big deal become really important to you. Like who gets the basic lands this next set? Because all of a sudden that can open up an entirely new deck. If, if, you know, some artist who hasn't done lands before gets a swamp, now all of a sudden we get to build, you know, you can build Yeah, that. Yeah, so like it sets up, you know, that you, you, you get to find these artists that maybe have a balance for, you mm -hmm. know, having done lands and non-lands. And then, you know, the idea being that this is a 60-card deck, that every card in that deck has to be by the same artist. That's yeah. something that could be done in this game. Yeah. And and there's it's a it's a small but incredibly passionate community that cares about art and you know it loves building decks and doing some goofy things with with the card game, but loves the art and and so there's a community that was very that talks about this so that looks at which artists have lands and which artists have other things and kind of people building different decks and making guides for people who are interested so they can kind of try to get in and some places to look and. Good resources, like even a few years ago before Scryfall became really big, like it was hard to find resources that helped you to find all the versions of cards for different artists because Wizards has a pretty good card searcher on their engine, but it doesn't get as granular as you'd like for certain things. And, well, and so like we could take, we could take, uh, you know, Ant, for example, you have mm -hmm. a hinder that is a promo card. Yep. So it's, you know, that then opens up to we can play that card in the deck, but if we don't have a good way to search for it, you have to just happen to know that that art is by you in a promo set. Yep. And that, because that sets it apart from every, that's one of the, like the major difference between it and every other like actual sanction format is that in other formats, the specific printing doesn't matter. A forest is a forest as a forest from any set. A hinder is the same hinder as every set, except in this format, you've got to get, you know, the the hinder promo that Ant did if you want to put it in your in that deck. Wow, I, I didn't realize that um, that they had they didn't have that level of differentiation. So um, the, yeah, so there's this great website called Scryfall now, and you can pull up and do a search that, you know, it's a very, very powerful search engine that has incorporated all of promos and every printing of a card. So you could search by an artist and it will bring up every single card that that artist has done, promos, non-promos, et cetera. Oh, that's cool. That is very cool. But it is, you know, that's it's this, these ways to be able to interact and to play magic that that is beyond just a competition or or the competitive side of things. Mm -hmm. And that's where those those events that kind of set magic apart from other sort of fandoms and other hobbies. And there's a lot of other things. I enjoy playing games in a lot of different environments, but none of them really have anything quite like those Grand Prix, the Magic Fests, whatever we want to call them these days. 
and so that's been a real loss as you were if you've been saying it it's a it's been a real loss for us this last year and a half but that's that's a thing we've talked about in our podcast about unfortunately last year right at the beginning of march we posted an episode talking about you know if you have how, how to go to these events and how even if you have some social anxiety or things like that there's some good tips to get into these events and then of course of course then <laughs> right as all the events were getting canceled yeah we yeah. literally posted it a week before most lockdowns started across the U.S. Oh. Oh. Hey, you should go to your next big GP and meet people. <laughs> Here, here's ways to overcome if maybe you have some difficulty with being in crowds and oh, being outgoing. Geez. Okay, now don't listen to us at all. Stay <laughs> away from everyone. Yeah, we, we had to do a follow-up with of, on that one. And then... Uh, oh, no. Here's some here's some ways to not feel super isolated when you're in isolation. <laughs> um, well, you, you know, Alex is kind of bringing us over to this anxiety piece to it. You know, it does kind of transition us to the other thing that Aunt, you and I talked a little bit about. You know, when we we started talking about this, which is, you know, this show is a lot about kind of mental health, and I've been very open with my own kind of depression and anxiety, and I know that talking about that even within the field of psychology it's often kind of you know it doesn't get talked about right like prescribers or providers or therapists having mental health issues is something that's generally kind of skirted around much much like most mental health is in our own community um and when you and I were talking you kind of were like well you know like as I would expect there is mental health concerns I am sure in the art community. And that's our show for today. You can find the host on Twitter. Hotsku can be found at Hotsku, and Alex Newman can be found at Mel underscore Send any questions, comments, thoughts, hopes, and dreams to at GoblinLorePod on Twitter or email us at GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support your friendly neighborhood gobsmokes, the cast can be found at patreon.com slash goblinworldpod. Opening and closing music by Vindergotten, who can be found on Twitter at Vindergotten or online at vindergotten.bandcamp.com. Logo art by Steven Raphael, who can be found on Twitter at Steve Raphael. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Hipsters of the Coast as part of their growing Vorthos content, as well as magic content of all kinds. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you all for listening. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs>